Hey guys, welcome to a new episode of Sauce of the Scary. Jeff Wright, Derek Zoo here with you uh, with our continuation of It Week. Uh, Jeff, what's going on, man? How are you? You know, I'm doing okay. I, In some ways, I guess, Derek, I'm kind of down because this is the last movie I really got super excited to see for for the calendar year, you know? Uh-huh. Uh, I guess Joker has gotten more interesting and uh, the new Zombieland will be fun too, but like this is the one that... You know, I guess for more than, you know, I guess more than a year and a half, you've just kind of been sitting around saying, that's it in 2019. And on the far side of it, man, I feel like I don't have any, I don't have any more hope. Mm, that's glad, bleak. Yeah, man. I'm glad, glad to start black this morning. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I'll cool. be seeing for, uh, Frozen 2 as well. Don't, <laughs> don't get it twisted, but yeah. You know, this is, this was kind of, uh, this was kind of the, the tentpole movie on the other side of us. And, it's come and gone now, and I'll go back and see it again. But anyway, just a just a rough moment as a movie fan. So you're not that excited for Doctor Sleep? Yeah, I am. Just not as much as I was for It Chapter Two. I mean, there's good yeah. stuff, you know, but like uh, this was supposed to be the experience, you know. It's more than two hours and the big payoff, and I don't know. I just uh, I guess I feel I don't say melancholy. I just feel like I'm on the far side of something I anticipated for a long time. Well, I understand that. Um, I want to apologize right off the bat for uh, how I sound. I uh, just got out of it, chapter two, so <laughs> <laughs> extremely tired. Um, so, as we normally do for tentpole movies like this, we're going to skip the horror reporter and Jeff H trailers and just go straight into the main event. So, you want to pull the string on this thing? Could Could I take just a moment and apologize for something? Absolutely. So, before we pull the string, I owe you and our listeners an apology. So as Derek mentioned, this is it week for us. We've been re-releasing our previous content on the uh, the adaptations of the, the Stephen King novel, and Derek recorded a dope short, but a dope intro to the 2017 Chapter 1, and uh, I spent the night mixing that thing up and failed to upload it. And so you just got the review content. Um, I guess that was Thursday. And so anyway, Derek, I'm sorry I wasted your time. And, and listener, I'm sorry you didn't get that uh, that sweet nugget of Derek's dulcet voice uh, as you listen there. And I, I feel like a heel for that. Oh, no, man, you're fine. No big deal at all. Uh, apology, apology accepted, but not needed. Well, that's gracious of you. I still feel like a big dummy. It was amateur hour, apparently, when I was uploading that episode. Ah, man. Stuff happens. It's no big deal. I uh, only only thing I was concerned about was that I had uploaded the stuff wrong. So no, you you sounded quite quite fabulous, my friend. I apparently <laughs> just thought it belonged in the digital <laughs> digital uh, wasteland of my my recycle bin. That's okay. Sometimes you want to be selfish and just keep things for yourself. It's no big deal. <laughs> well, uh, thanks for being gracious, and again, my apologies. Um, my my contrition being completed. I am ready to pull the string, sir. Why don't you lead us through it? Let's do it to it, man. It chapter. Two, so I don't know how you want to go with this. So I'm just gonna I'm just gonna throw some stuff at you, and you can tell me uh, how you want to start off. What are your initial thoughts, like out of the gate? Well, the 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 thing that pressed in on me from about ten minutes into the movie till I got home late last night is, is a term that is overused, but I really feel like it fits here. I felt like I watched a fever dream. I mean, that, okay. mo- that movie was big and bold and went everywhere and sprawled and uh, just crazy stuff I didn't anticipate. I mean, I've read the novel. 
I've watched the 1990 miniseries multiple times. I've watched the 2017 film multiple times. I mean, I couldn't be more familiar with this material. And uh, Muschietti took us on a journey, man. Mm-hmm. So, so I'm going to go with Fever Dream. What about you? Um, Initially, like my initial thoughts are... If you'd have cut half an hour of it, I would have been I would have been on here singing the praises of a masterpiece. But man, like I felt all two hours and forty nine minutes of that movie. Yeah, and and here's here's my disclaimer on that is I had to go late last night. So when I say that I just got out of it, I'm not too far off. <laughs> from actually really just getting out of it. Um, I had to go to the 1045 showing of it last night. So I got out of the theater at 1.50 and I was home at 2.15. And just to pull back the curtain, we're recording this at 7.27 in the morning. So that could have had something to do with it. Like if I wouldn't have went to see this at like 8 o'clock last night and gotten out at 11, maybe it wouldn't be so bad. But as I'm sitting there in my comfortable reclining chair, grumble, grumble, uh, grumble, it, grumble. enjoying my pizza and s'more shake from Alamo Draft House. Um, <laughs> sorry, I, 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 I mean, the, I got I to gotta rip it in. You're the movie attending 1%, pal. <laughs> well played. Um, as I was sitting there with all that, it just don't get me wrong. The the third act is amazing and you completely forget what's going on. But the build up to the third act, there were certain spots where I was like, OK, let's 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 everyone find their token. And let's everyone get this thing on the road like an hour into it. I remember being like, Are, I have I have two more hours of this mess. Well, I, I relate to that. So the the specific point in the movie for me that I kind of realized, like, oh, my word, we've been here a while. And we're not even close to the end is when we go to Eddie Kasprak's, um seeking out his token. And he comes back to the, the pharmacy or whatever. And they do that mm-hmm. face mailed thing. <laughs> um, I didn't go as late as you did. I went to the 730 showing and I got out at 1045. But I'm assuming the demands of, you know, a working day schedule. Affected my experience as well. The movie felt long. I don't know that Mm -hmm. I know what I would cut out of it. I just know it felt long. And I did think driving home last night, I wonder how many times I will rewatch this movie. Yeah. Because it is a chunk, man. Um, Yeah. You know, I've I've rewatched Endgame a couple times. A a big part of that is because of my kids, you know, and and we've also watched it in bite-sized nuggets. And so maybe there's a future for the for this movie uh, living on that way for me. Not, not so much with my kids right now, but just, you know, I'll turn it on and watch uh Maybe the you know the the teenage Ben Hanscom running into the Beverly It uh, you know or whatever, but I don't know. It, it it's still hard to get my head around just what my future relationship with this film will be because of its mm-hmm. length, and that's really important to me because, like I've mentioned, I've watched the Tim Curry miniseries countless times, and I've watched 2017 not as many, but you know proportionately as many based on when they were released, and so. Uh, I, I do think I do think the the spread of this film is going to hold that back in some ways. Yeah, I um, 100% agree with you on that, and that was one of the things I think when we were getting into the third act last night that I remember being like, "Man, I don't know if I'll watch this in theaters again." And then it led me down the path of like, "Well, will you rewatch it?" And I'm sure that I'll rewatch it eventually, but. 
it was I mean it was just a lot it was a lot to take in and granted you're having to tell a lot of story but my goodness I really do feel like you could have cut certain things and and I'm with you I don't know off the top of my head like I wasn't making a list of what those things were but I just felt like that there were that it was just it was a chore man and uh, yeah. I know that's 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 weird coming from a guy that can uh, sit down and watch uh, Endgame which is three hours I sit down and watch it all day every day but it really was it was it was a difficult um, a difficult movie to get through that but that being said I don't want to sit here and crap on this movie uh, I, I thought it was great I, I don't think I don't think that I enjoyed it as much as I did the first one but I still think it's a very very good movie. Yeah, it it's Muschietti's masterpiece, right? Like you can tell that guy had every resource he wanted, had all the time. You know, the studio gave him a ton of time, and he pulled out everything in his bag of tricks. And I don't mean that, yeah. like you said, I don't mean that critically. I mean not everything in this movie worked for me, but it's a really good movie. And mm-hmm. uh, I, I'll tell you this: I'm more. I wouldn't call my experience watching this movie a chore. And I, you know, I, I definitely was in a better place of like what time in my schedule it fell. I felt like I was on, you know, again, I guess I'm trotting out all the tired cliches today. This really was a roller coaster uh, mm-hmm. or, or maybe a safari. I mean, you you ventured far and wide. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I really enjoyed it. I just, yeah, just uh, my only criticism there is what the, uh, what the future will look like. And I do think I'll go back to the theater and watch this. One, you're going to get such a kick out of this, Derek. Uh, friend of the podcast, this isn't the part you'll get a kick out of. Uh, friend of the podcast, Mac Williams texting me just as I stepped out of the theater and was like, hey, you want to go see it tomorrow or are you going to tomorrow? And I was like, hey, if you want to go back or if you want to go tomorrow, I'll come back and watch it with you. So that may still be on my docket. But, you know, speaking of you as the 1%, so I'm watching this at AMC Theaters in Cookville, Tennessee. Mm-hmm. I'm there with friend of the podcast, Jared Moore. The antithesis of the Alamo Draft House. <laughs> Dude, just just get ready for this. I can't wait. They didn't turn the surround sound on. No. All the sound in this movie came from the first, the front two speakers. Jeff, come on, dude. I I really don't even know what to do with him anymore, man. Again, I know the manager over there. He's great. And I've been to theater, you know, when it was owned by Carmike, I went to a theater that he managed that was very good. Mm-hmm. So I have to lay this on AMC. And I was just kind of furious. The first, you know, until, until Bill and Mike go on that ayahuasca trip to commune mm. with the Indian spirits. Mm. Hang, hang on a second. Wahlberg. What? No. Spoiler alert. All right. Sorry, I forgot to do that, so we're good now. Yeah, I did too. Um, Until that point in the movie, you know, it's a lot of dialogue. Mm -hmm. You don't really get, like, super loud creature feature until right before that when they're in the Chinese theater. And, dude, I had a hard time hearing some of the dialogue. And I was mm-hmm. sitting on the, the the front row in the upper section where you can put your feet up on the uh, – you'll know what I'm talking about. There's a, there's a separated – there's mm-hmm. two sections of, of seating area separated by a walkway. And everybody kind of wants to sit in the first row of the second section because there's a, there's a metal ba- uh, banister there or whatever you can put your feet up on. I had a hard time hearing the dialogue. And it, it mm. just – it never quits, man. That is just – AMC is the movie company that keeps giving. It <laughs> – I'm so I, I'm getting so hot just thinking about it, dude. It's crazy. Yeah, that is messed up, man. Well, and um, you know the thing is, like, go complain, right? Sure. But it's not like they're pausing the movie and rewinding it for me. And I know I've got right. two more hours of this film to watch, dude. I, yeah, enjoy that Alamo Draft House, pal. 
Oh, I plan to. <laughs> uh, <laughs> squeezing every last drop of it out of here before I leave Missouri. Don't worry. Um, <laughs> just come, just come to Missouri and watch it with me. I'll go back. I'll go back and watch it with you if uh, if we go in the Alamo Draft House. I, I legit, if I go back today, I'm going to be like, right, can can I get a you know a pre-show commitment? You're going to turn on the surround sound. Yeah. So anyway, I, I'll quit griping about that. That sidebar is over. But um, my goodness, how do you how do you do that, man? That just well, I, I don't heard understand. somebody come in. Like I could hear them come in the projector room. I heard mm-hmm. the door creak open and shut, and uh, they turned it up. They made it louder. There might have been some kind of you know technical failure uh, in the surround sound. Mm-hmm. But guess what, man? Get your crap together before the movie starts. Yeah, and pick a theater that either say, "Look, that showing has got to be canceled because we can't offer it to you," or you're going to have to go in knowing this, or, or you know anything other than letting people get in the movie and only only get the sound from two speakers. Yeah. Yeah, well, in that case, I definitely would go back because if you can barely hear what's going on, then you definitely want to definitely want to go back and check out and hear what you missed. Yeah. So I guess a lot of this has been preliminary and some of it being gripey. Um, But you want to talk about some good stuff so that people here aren't like, well, they hated it and crapped all over. Yeah, for sure, man. Um, I do have a few formal complaints, but we can get to that um, in a little bit. I think the I think the good stuff definitely outweighs the bad. For sure. Um, Where do you want to start? I guess the thing that that struck me um, watching this like first off is something we've talked about a lot, but we just get confirmation on it. And it's it's how well the casting of this movie worked, not Mm -hmm. just um, not just in physical appearance, although that was incredibly consistent, but in in continuing the characters from 2017. Mm -hmm. Um, even down to Henry Bowers, the the guy they had playing old Henry Bowers locked up in the uh, asylum looked like what I imagine one of those age forward apps would make the kid who played the young version look like. Mm-hmm. Um, it really and truly, in some ways, it was kind of stunning how much they they corresponded to their young actors. Um, can I ask you a question on this front about sure. the first time we meet uh, older Ben Henscom? Mm-hmm. So we're in, you know, when they when they first bring Ben into the picture, we're clued into it because we see Hanscom Architects or whatever on on this conference room door, mm-hmm. and there's a guy in there explaining to a board of you know, CEOs or whatever, uh, some architectural plans. And the guy they had doing it, I felt like... Looked like the kid? Looked like the kid aged forward so much so that I was like, there's no way that kid has aged to the point he could play that role, right? It's just been two years. Mm -hmm. Did you have a similar experience? Yeah, 100%. Okay, okay. I'm uh, glad I'm not crazy. Yeah, no, I saw that. I saw that guy and I was like, oh my gosh, if, if people don't know... The story, like if they don't know, you know, that this guy loses his baby fat and turns out to be a handsome fella, they're going to think it's him because mm-hmm. in the face and everything, like he looked, he looked just like that guy. Um, and I don't know if that was like digital um, CGI effects or anything, but my goodness, man, that was the first thing I thought. I was like, they're, they're trying to set it up to where you think that that is Ben. And kudos to Muschietti for doing that because it was a really good swerve. Well, you know what, Derek? Um, I'm I'm looking through the IMDb trying to figure out who who that actor was, mm-hmm. and the credit I think this is is listed as big guy, okay. and it's, it's played by an actor named Brandon Crane. Does that name ring a bell to you? Um, no, it does not. Well, it's it, he's the guy who played young Ben Hanscom in the 1990 miniseries. Get out of town! No, dude, what a stinking masterstroke of casting. He looked like Ben Hanscom because he was Ben Hanscom. (laughs) 
Uh, you know what? Forget every negative thing I had to say about this movie. That's, Dude, that is some meta stuff right there. That's incredible. Well, hand clap, Andy Muschietti, Gary Doberman. Is it Barbara Muschietti? Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, Andy's sister, pretty sure. Yeah, I mean, good, good night, man. What a move. I'm so uh, impressed right now. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that is really good. Well, um, you know, with the casting, I don't want to get into like criticisms, so I'm going to tread lightly here. But this movie to me was carried by obviously Chastain, McAvoy, Hader, and Ransone, um, and mm-hmm. Bill Skarsgård. I thought that Jay Ryan did a great job of being the beefcake, but didn't bring a lot to the table otherwise. Uh, I thought he was horrible. Okay, that's then, the that's the one criticism I have. Well, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna follow up then. Just add this onto your thoughts. Did they intentionally keep lines away from him? You think because I felt like he was marginalized. Take it and run. Okay, so so that's a possibility. Um, I just thought that he was very wooden with his dialogue, with his delivery, and. When I went back and did some research on it, he's Australian. So I wonder if he just has a hard time keeping that American accent. Gotcha. But, dude, I thought he was I, – I just – I did not like him at all. I thought he had the wrong vibe from the from the minute we meet him. And at first I was like, has this guy ever acted before? <laughs> like, did they just get a model? And they're like, oh, you look kind of like what we want. And it, and it just didn't make sense to me because the other casting in this is perfect or, mm-hmm. or, or borderline perfect. And he's the one weak spot in this movie. He sticks out like a sore thumb to me and to, to the point where I was actively rooting for James McAvoy to get the girl. <laughs> I was just like, there's no way. And he like he and Chastain didn't have any kind of chemistry. Right. When when he when he announces at the very end or, you know, in the in the climax of the third act that like he loves her and they're trying to like save one another. I didn't feel that. Even her her response to him, I don't know what take how many takes they had to choose from, but like she looked like it was awkward rather than yeah. an epiphany or endearing. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, oh wow, holy cow, this is this is not what uh, I wanted or expected. Yeah, with with the miniseries with John Ritter and Annette O'Toole, you felt it, mm-hmm. and you were you were excited to see them like get together. And that was one of the things that I was the most looking forward to in this movie was like getting to see the fat kid get his dream girl. You know, yeah. and even when like they're burning the tokens. And he's like, yeah, I kept it in my wallet for 27 years. Like, none of that felt real. This felt like a guy who was just, who was, who was line reading in a multi-million dollar movie. Mm. And I was so frustrated by that because I think you and I both have a soft spot for that character. Absolutely. And you want to see, you know, you want, you want to see this guy get what he deserves because that, you know, the the 2017 movie where he pulls her down and kisses her and, and basically rescues her from the deadlights, that's a really endearing moment in the movie. Mm-hmm. And it just never pays off in this. And I was I was really disappointed by that. And I, I'm tracking with you. Uh, I don't. I don't think they, you know, in hindsight could have cast a Chris Pratt for this because he would, in hindsight, I think, have pulled something away from Bill Hader's performance. Yeah, I was I was actually talking to I apologize for interrupting you. I was actually I was actually talking to a friend of mine about this after the movie. And she said the same thing. She was like, Pratt can't be serious long enough to do that role. And especially when you get Bill Hader in there, like it would just be back and forth, joke, joke, joke all the time. And I guess I never really thought about that until she brought that up. But I wish that there would have been 
a better actor to choose from. Yeah, the the thing Pratt could have brought is a a sense of humility, of a posture of humility towards the world. Like Ben's a character who has redefined himself and become a self made man. But mm-hmm. every bit of that is built on top of what happened to him as a kid, and he's defined by not only you know his relationship to Derry, but his relationship to 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 Beverly. And so I, I think um, John Ritter did a good job of showing that in the miniseries, and I think the the kid who played uh, in 2017 also showed you a kid who had a lot of potential, but also was very self-aware. And mm-hmm. Beefcake from Australia, again, he he pulled the look off like <laughs> Hater's line that he looks like every European soccer star rolled into one is spot on. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he just didn't have the depth of personality, or at least it didn't come across. Yeah. Not to not to continue the theme of criticism. I'm hoping to work from like worst to best here. Sure. I wasn't blown away by Isaiah Mustafa's performance either. Okay, well, uh, go ahead, expound on that, and then I'll t- I'll tell you how I feel about it. The uh, the line delivery too. I felt like he was stilted and mm-hmm. like was making choices about. I, I felt like I could tell when he was making a choice to stammer. You know, like it was on his face. Like I need to I need to deliver this with a little bit of a halting, uh, you know, delivery at this moment. And I just. You know, compared to the rest of that cast, now, of course, he's out ahead of Jay Ryan, but I just thought, like, man, Mike... We need some gravitas with Mike, and mm-hmm. this guy doesn't quite doesn't quite hit the hit the mark. Okay, let me let me submit to you that I felt that he didn't he wasn't given enough to work with. Okay, with with um, with Mustafa's Mike, everyone else in the Losers Club gets a personality. And it just feels like that. I mean, granted, Mike gets his role back as historian, which is something that you and I both lamented on about the original or about the the 2017 version. Um, But besides that, man, he really doesn't have much to do in this movie. And I really thought that that was not necessarily an insult, but it was really disappointing because to me, Mike has an incredible backstory. And I I know this may sound hypocritical for a guy that was just like, cut the movie. But I, I wish that we had a chance to see more of his stuff. And I feel like that, that they kind of did a disservice to that character. Muschietti did a disservice to that character in both films. Mm. Because I feel like that, that we said sort of the same thing in the 2017 version. And we're saying the same thing here. And I don't know if there's a disconnect. Like maybe Doberman and Muschietti just didn't know what to do with that character or, or what the situation was. But it... Mike feels really tacked on and it's sad because I think that you're supposed to have like this big hero moment with him where he decides to leave Derry and mm. start his life over. I was really ambivalent towards it. Totally get it, man. It's it's supposed to be this catharsis. Like Mike's going to get to go to Florida, you know? Yeah. And I just thought, uh, okay. I mean, who is, you know, like you said, who is this guy? Um, how's he going to, how's he going to reinvent himself? He's been living above a, you know, a library for 27 years. What kind of marketable skills are we thinking he's taken to with him? You know what I mean? Like it's just a, right. it's just a, it's just a mishandling of a, a character that you and I both agree is super important. Um, it, it's just a shame. To, to move it more positively, though, I really wish we'd have had more time with Andy Bean as Stanley Uris. I thought mm-hmm. he played that with real gravity and real seriousness, even before you get to the end of the movie and get a little extra dab of him, you know, uh, that... That little brief segment we have at the beginning of the film felt super weighty. Mm-hmm. 
And I think I'm probably being influenced by uh, by Andy Bean's performance in Swamp Thing, the uh, the DC Universe uh, streaming series. I'm watching it right now. I'm, I've been pleasantly surprised and find it really good. And he's, you know, he is there in, uh, you know, in in recognizable form fairly briefly. But nonetheless, uh, it's probably impacting my my view here. But he made much more out of the character than I expected anyone to be able to. If that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. And again, perfect casting because. He- he looks exactly like what that kid would look like. Yeah. I mean, he and Eddie, like if Jack Dylan Grazer doesn't grow up to look exactly like his adult counterpart in this movie, I'm going to be shocked. <laughs> right. Right. Um, I'm trying to think who else they made a really they made a really smart decision I think to lean back into the young kids. Mm-hmm. There was I figured we'd get a few flashbacks here, but we got so much more with them. And to Muschietti's credit, I'm assuming a bunch of that is new shots and not you know stuff left out of the first film. Mm-hmm. They did a great job, better than you know for comparison, Stranger Things season three. They did a great job of making me feel like these kids hadn't aged from when we last saw them in 2017. Okay, so it's funny you say that. Uh, I was doing some research after I got home last night, and they apparently the kids have aged so much over the last couple of years that they had to go in and actually digitally de-age them. Well, they did a great job. <laughs> yeah, because I, I felt like they they really picked right up where we left off with them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I felt the exact same way, and and kudos to everyone involved in that movie for for making that decision to you know to go back in and and make them look like. You had just you had just shot these back to back, you know. Mm-hmm. In particular, just continuing a theme already, these films have have done a good job of of helping us to see. For instance, Sophia Lillis is like a future star, right? Or mm-hmm. to give you Jack Dylan Grazer and Finn Wolfhard again and be like, nope, for real, they're on their way up. Um, I think this film more than anything left me wanting more from Wyatt Olaf, who plays young Stanley Ears. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that kid has some emotional gravity as an actor, too, that, that I didn't quite see in Chapter 1. And so, like, I got on his IMDb, and he's doing some kind of series with Sophia Lillis where I think she becomes a superheroine, and he's there in the cast, and I'm definitely going to check it out because I want to see more from both of those kids. Mm. Um, yeah. Oh, sorry. She was, uh, I was just going to say, she was also in... What was she also in? Something that we were watching or something I was watching for half a second on HBO where she plays the the child version of an actress. Uh, she was in Sharper, Sharp Objects. That's what it was. Thank you. And yeah. Amy Adams, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I wish we'd have got more with the younger version of Amy Adams in that in that series because Sophia Lillis is great. Yeah, she is. And going, going back to another point that we were talking about, um, when she is in the, I mean, we know it's Pennywise, but when she and um, Ben are in the classroom together and they're having that moment, Again, more chemistry than <laughs> either of their adult counterparts had. One hundred percent, man. One hundred percent. I could not agree more. Like I, it hurt me. Even though I anticipated this has got to be Pennywise, mm-hmm. it hurt me when she delivered those lines about a fat, disgusting kid. Yeah, uh, and it's because, like you said, you really believe that Ben has this deep set crush on her, and she's one of the few people in the world who kind of sees more to him than what the bullies around him have have foisted upon him. Mm-hmm. Uh, it it was such an emotionally 
powerful. See, I know that's a weird thought, but yeah, I, I was I was deeply invested in that one. Yeah, as as was I, and yeah, they just they did a really great job with um, with that. And again, just just had, uh, in my opinion, just off the charts chemistry in that. And and yeah, you I mean like you said, you just you feel it, and and your heart breaks a little bit when when she's delivering these lines, even though you're pretty sure it's Pennywise. Um, so yeah, I just I, I think I think all those child actors are great. Um, who, if you were going to have to pick somebody from the adults that like stole the show or stood out the most to you, um, why would you pick Bill Hader? <laughs> I was just getting ready to say we're kind of getting into the elites here and going from worst to least. I would probably go Chastain, McAvoy, and then Bill Hader. Yeah, I mean, Jessica Chastain, I don't want to take anything away from her. I think that she did fine. But to me, the three people that anchored this movie were McAvoy, Hader, and Bill Skarsgård. Right, right. Um, And, I mean, kudos to Bill Hader. Like, I've always been a big Bill Hader fan from, from SNL to Barry to now. But I don't know what it was about this movie. But every time he was on the screen, you can't take your eyes off of him. Yeah, so I I know Bill exclusively from SNL. Um, what was that character he did on Weekend Update? It was Stefan? Stefan, yeah. yeah. So that that's my entire exposure to him. I haven't really watched any other movies that he's in, and uh, I was I, I I was right where you were at. Like he's attention grabbing. He plays his part with real humor, but like a brokenness that's just below the surface, and. Mm-hmm. Um, it just exceeded what I expected from him as somebody who hasn't watched his career. So I'm I'm 100% with you. He This is a star turn to my mind. There's going to be a ton of people see this. And I know Bill already has a pretty high profile, but he's going to get a lot of like calls for leading men role, roles uh, out of this, or at least the kind of Philip Seymour Hoffman most important supporting actor roles. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and based on what he did in this this film, I think he, he deserves it thoroughly. Yeah, man, 100%. He is... He's so good, and I guess one of the – I don't want to jump ahead, but I do want to talk about this at some point. Uh, one of the things that caught me off guard with this movie was how much humor they injected into it. Yes, absolutely. O- oftentimes, at, in my opinion, at the worst spots. Um, but there's a lot of humor in this, um, and especially, you know, going back and forth with Eddie and Richie and Hater does such a, I mean, Hater's obviously, you know, a, a comedian and does a great job with it. But the, that ending scene where they're all in the lake and, you know, he's cleaning his glasses and they're all kind of going back and saying like what Eddie would be telling them at that moment. And he just breaks down and just begins mm-hmm. to sob uncontrollably. I was just like, holy smokes, man. Man, that is that is such a powerful, powerful scene. And then to to not only be just in the throes of grief, but then once his group is around him trying to support him for him to come off of that quip, I was just like, man, freaking Bill Hader. <laughs> Some people get extra. Uh, I, yeah, I just I, I thought he was I thought he was terrific uh, throughout the whole thing. And I'll tell you this, Jeff, I think that this movie solidifies any time that people ask me like who my favorite actors are. I think I have to say James McAvoy, and yeah, I, he's it, really it's, good. It's never a it's never a name that comes to like the forefront of my mind. You know, mm-hmm. I'm always thinking like Tom Hardy or obviously Robert Downey Jr. People like that, but even even in movies that I don't like, looking at you, Split. Um, James McAvoy is phenomenal in it. 
Yeah, and there's there's carryovers like his Bill Denbro has some reference to his Professor X. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, if you take the X Men franchise, this one, and split as sort of the defining roles of his career, at least thus far. You you know, we've talked on here often about the actor who plays the same person in every role. That mm-hmm. is not James McAvoy. You, there's common elements, but this guy is a different person in every role he plays. And it's impressive. He, yeah. He's stellar. Like, again, it, it was a high thing to inherit the moral credibility and inherent leadership qualities of the young Bill Denbro. Mm-hmm. And James picked it up and ran with it, man. Like, I get that he's the linchpin to the whole thing. When Mike tells him, if you're in, everybody else will be in. I was like, yep, that's Actually, that's absolutely right. Yeah. These adults are going to make this counterintuitive decision largely based on if Bill's in or out. And James yeah. James captured it. Yeah, he just he, he did an amazing job and, and his stutter was really good. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you can get into farcical territory with things like that. And I never felt that way with him. I was just like, yeah, dude, this 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 feels genuine. This feels real. And uh, yeah, I just I have I can't say enough good things about uh, James McAvoy. And, you know, honestly, this movie made me want to go back and revisit like Glass. Sure. Just to spend more time with James McAvoy as an actor, getting to watch him do a master class in, you know, different different characters and things like that. And, you know, I think that they're. I think one of the characters that he plays in Glass is Bill Denbrook. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right, right. Well, you provided the transition to, um, I guess, to the the pinnacle for me. You mentioned that this movie is funny in ways that maybe one you didn't expect, and then two that probably weren't the best. Uh, it wasn't the best time in the movie to be funny. Mm-hmm. So my theory on that is Muschietti decided to turn Bill Skarsgård loose and tell him, "Go do you know your full wattage." And so I want to talk specifically about some of the unintentionally funny parts of this film. But I also want to talk about how glad I am to see Skarsgård get a chance to do everything he can with Pennywise. I kind of feel like this is Muschietti pouring everything out into a film. And I feel the same way about Skarsgård's performance with Pennywise. They give him Mm -hmm. room to do everything. Uh, and I, I was quite happy with it, even though I thought it did push parts of the film into emotional uh, moments that that weren't what was intended. Okay. Do I sense you disagree? No, I don't at all. I was just waiting on you to give examples. I'm sorry. Oh uh, well, I I think you get the full range of Skarsgård from sinister leering monster. Um, I'm assuming we'll talk about some scary stuff. I'm just gonna say if you remember my review from 2017's version, I hated that. Clown for what he did to Georgie. You know, that, mm-hmm. that opening scene mm-hmm. makes me furious with Pennywise. I didn't think they could go back there because that is such an iconic scene, but the little girl under the, the bleachers, mm-hmm. um, I could have killed Bill Skarsgård with my bare hands watching that play out. Yeah. Um, but then you get to one of the inadvertently funny uh, scenes. It's in that Ben and Beverly, uh, you know, it masquerading as Beverly scenes where Ben ends up in the in the locker mm-hmm. and Pennywise ends up behind him and he, he delivers that line. Give me a kiss fat boy. Yeah, and dude, I just rolled. I just yeah. thought it was hilarious. Uh, again, I don't know if that's what they were going for, but it like, I was like this cosmic entity murder clown is really a funny, funny kind of guy. Yeah. Um, then to the, I mean, a lot of it was vocal and visual, but the, that final confrontation with it, where he goes super big as the spider down to shriveled little worm who's being mm-hmm. executed. 
executed. Um, most of that's just in his face and his voice. And I believe both versions. I believe this is a towering monster, and I believe this is a sniveling little worm that that needs to be put out of its, if not its misery, its existence. Yeah. So yeah, I feel like they just said, "Hey, Bill, go for it," and they kept the fa- the cameras running. And man, they did a great job, and he did an incredible job. So mm-hmm. those are my examples. Yeah, for sure. Um, the the one that springs to my mind is when Beverly is in the house and um, this is after Mrs. Kirsch has turned into a nine foot tall naked monster mm-hmm. and Bev is running down the hall and she's trying to get out the door and she turns to look back and he is in a human form mm-hmm. and he's like he's doing the old Jack Nicholson Joker thing where he's taking the, the flesh colored paint off and there's white underneath but not only that you see where he like cuts himself to make mm-hmm. those those shapes with um, the clown shapes on his face mm-hmm. and for me that was incredibly jarring like he, you know here's this entity that is preying off their fears and is and is doing a great job of like <laughs> seasoning them up for the main course and I think that was the first time where I was like, it's a wonderful juxtaposition from this evil, like naked nine foot monster that we all kind of chuckle at to this really super serious. And even then he's, he's laughing and it's just, it, to me it worked. I mean, to me it was just a really, I don't know if I want to say powerful scene, but it was just, it was, it was, it was a nine on the creep factor. 100%. He's bristling. You know, there's this sinister awareness of a, of a looming threat that's just radiating off of him. It, the only person I know who really compares to that in a horror movie, this is big praise, but it, it's Jack Nicholson. Like he does mm-hmm. this thing of like, I'm not really moving. I'm just kind of sitting here seething. But you realize that there is this pent up energy behind him that if, if the dam breaks, everything's going to turn blood red. Yeah. And I think it was in that moment where I was like, oh, this isn't this isn't our mama's pennies Pennywise. You know what I mean? Like this is even even from two years ago, like this is a completely different character. Mm-hmm. And he's he's out for revenge and he's out for blood and he's he's going to do whatever it takes to get these these guys. So kudos to him, man. He he does a wonderful job with this. I again, um, reading reading different things after the movie last night. Uh, I guess Bill Hader went up to Bill Skarsgård in full like clown makeup and everything. And he was like, dude, what kind of CGI did they use to make your eyes go the way that they do? <laughs> and, Come apparently, on, Hader. and apparently Skarsgård went, oh, you mean like this? And did it and just freaked Bill Hader out. <laughs> Good for you, Scar's card. That's exactly what you want to do with that party trick. You know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I just thought that was just the, the the perfect thing, but also hilarious thing to do in a situation like that. Yeah, totally agree. Well, um, let's just talk about the movie a little bit now. I know maybe there's some people who are like, hey, can we talk about what actually happened in front of the camera? Um, yeah. Can, can we start with that inadvertent funny stuff? Sure. Did... Uh, so the the other one for me was when the leper attacks Eddie Kasbrack, the adult version, mm-hmm. underneath um, the, the the pharmacy, pharmacy again, and he's choking him to death, and then he just vomits all that gray goop into his face. Mm-hmm. Was that supposed to be funny? I don't know, man, but it was. It was like I was rolling in my seat laughing at that. Yeah. Um. And why do you think Muschietti put that sound clip in? That just call me baby pop song. Oh yeah, I don't know, man. 
So that it, whole it, scene was weird to me. Anyway. Okay, yeah, thank you. That's exactly what I was just about to say. Like that whole scene was just really strange, and we never really got a payoff with the with the mom situation. Like, mm-hmm. I know that that wasn't his mom, but also like I was just waiting on. Um, I was just waiting on Pennywise to pop up as his mother. Right. And it, yeah, the whole thing was just weird and not at a good weird. Yeah, I really would. I mean, I'm assuming we're going to get like a, a director's cut of both movies smushed together eventually. And I hope Muschietti does a director's commentary. <laughs> a Smushietti cut. <laughs> Look at you, boom, doom, ching. Still got him, even though he's he's worn out, folks. Still I'm got them shots. I'm punch drunk now. <laughs> I want to know what he was thinking. There's nothing comparable to that that specific scene where he laid pop music, just like one line of it, over some encounter with it, or even with like the losers hanging out. Right? I mean, mm-hmm. it just felt like it was from a different movie. Yeah, it did. That that whole scene just felt really weird and. Um, I will say this though. I don't know if you caught it or not, but um, as Eddie is in the drugstore, Andy Muschietti himself is one of the background characters. Oh no, I didn't catch that. Yeah, that's cool. Well, you could barely hear it, so I guess you wouldn't really be thinking about trying to look for directors and stuff. Yeah, I uh, you know the only thing I caught, I, I picked up on it before my friend did, but the Stephen King cameo when you just see him picking up picking up over the book he's reading, it's like, oh, Stephen King's in this, and then they yeah. they give you no ability to to wonder after that before we you know i guess uh leave this particular moment i do need to say james ransone was really good in this movie mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and really did a lot of heavy lifting uh i th- i actually think that weird that weird scene we're talking about undercut one of the more powerful parts of the movie when when his Eddie Kasprak is dying. Mm-hmm. He's the one who tells them make him small because he said, you know, I felt I felt him dying like I was choking him to death. And that's got to be a reference to him choking the uh, the the hobo, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, but, I mean, that's what he says. Okay. Well, why why undercut? What is obviously needing to set up the most emotionally powerful part of the third act with that weird pop overlay and like the super long vomit into the mouth thing. You know, mm-hmm. if, if that had been like one spurt that went in his mouth, mm-hmm. we would be horrified. Sure. But when it turns into a freaking fire hose of goo, it becomes vaudevillian. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, well said. And so it's just in a movie that I'm really impressed by, that's part of this twin set of movies that I'm really impressed by. That one to me feels like, I don't want to say misstep. It, it feels like, you know, the the cinematic equivalent of it, this creature from another world that landed on top of this movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I know I'm going on about it, but it just really stands out to me as like, what in the world were you thinking? Yeah. Yeah, it 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 seemed unnecessary, but it also seemed unintentionally hilarious. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what they could have done to keep it from being that way. Well, I would have went all quiet. Um, you know, at, at the end when it kind of first reasserts itself in that big red balloon and, and it pops and everybody goes deaf, mm-hmm. I would have went radio silent. And again, I would have had just a quick spurt that landed around Eddie's face and let him deal with the horror of did that get in my mouth? Is it part of my you know, is it is it in my immune system now? Mm-hmm. I, what I wouldn't have done is turned on the fountain. Yeah. 
Yeah. And also, I always thought that, like, in those situations, it was all just part of their head, like just part mm-hmm. of their imagination. But he walks out of the pharmacy drenched in this grayish goop, and no one says anything to him about it. Like the girl that has obviously lived there her whole life and yeah. was the girl that signed his cast and everything else. You know, she's obviously grown up now. I'm sorry. Even if I'm like the most cynical person, I'm going to look at a guy that's drenched in black tar or, or, you know, whatever and be like, hey, man, are you OK? Yeah. And, I'm assuming. Oh, go ahead. My bad. Uh, no, you're fine. And I was just and I was thinking like, oh, OK, well, then maybe maybe they made the choice of, OK, it's not real, but we're going to show that, it. you know, we're going to show him still in it but everyone else doesn't see it but then when he gets back to the end he still got it on and everyone else sees it yeah i'm i'm, I'm trying to head cannon it maybe the losers can see it it's and it's probably the equivalent of that that scene of the bloody eruption in beverly's bathroom her dad mm-hmm. can't see it but the losers can they help clean it up yeah it's probably working it. on that same principle the, before we leave Ransone and Unintended Comedy, I already mentioned the Give Me a Kiss Fat Boy line. That that cracked me up, too. Yeah. Um, Ransone, when he gets attacked by... Um, oh, what's that guy's name? I've, I've mentioned it a couple times already. It just slipped my head. Henry Bauer. Oh, yeah. So when Henry Bowers is attacking him and he stabs him in the side of the face and Ransone gets in the uh, the tub and he's pulling the curtain back, kind of like, hey, good talking to you, pal. And he pulls yeah. the curtain back. Uh, then he stabs him and then he like <laughs> side shuffles his way out of the out of the bathroom and he delivers the line about uh, the mullet. I mean, that whole and even into the hallway where he's like, Henry Bowers is in my room. <laughs> Just yeah. every bit of that was comedy gold. Yeah. I don't know if they were going for it, but I was I was laughing the whole time. Yeah, I was I was too. Um, the mullet line is what got me the most. I, and I think, if I'm not mistaken, it got the biggest laugh out of the whole audience. Yeah. Um, and again, it's it's one of those situations where I don't know if he felt that you needed that catharsis, you know, that moment of um, what's the word I'm looking for? Releasing tension. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Um, it's early. And I don't, I don't know if, if he felt like if he couldn't get a, a jump scare out of it, because there were several jump scares in this. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I don't know if he thought, well, if I can't get a jump scare, then I'm just going to get a laugh. Because that's that was what it felt like. It was either going to be one or the other in this movie. You were either going to, you know, you could tell that something was about to happen and you were going to get a jump scare out of it, or you were going to get uh, an intentional or unintentional moment of comedy. And uh, some things worked, and some things I was like, I don't know if I would be making jokes right now. <laughs> yeah. And this is coming from a guy who makes his living making jokes. Sure, sure. Well, I'm I'm going to enjoy it. You know what I mean? Like I'm I'm going to look back and be like that was a funny sequence. I thought visually it was pretty cool too to have Bauer stabbed in the chest, holding the uh, the shower curtain on him, and then like him slowly pulling it off the uh, the rings and stuff. Like it's not like that movie wasn't without sinister elements or you know compelling cinematography. Mm-hmm. It was just it was funny. Any any other comedic stuff that I'm not thinking about? Man, I'm I'm trying to think. I, I know that there were like several. While I was watching the movie, well, that whole scary, not scary, um, very scary, you know, the thing where where they go in and there's the little Pomeranian and they had mentioned before, like something about a Pomeranian. Maybe it's true form will be a puppy. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and, you know, we see that whole sequence. I mean, that was well done, but it was played. Obviously, it was played for laughs. Mm -hmm. Um, And just a lot of the back and forth between Richie and Eddie, which I guess. 
and looking at the movie as a whole was kind of playful flirting on Richie's part. Yeah. So I, I guess, would you like to talk about that element right now? Because I get why they stuck that in there, but I'm upset about that for characterization's sake. Okay. Yeah. Oh, I mean, I feel like that we, we need to talk about it because it's a, it's a pivotal part of this movie. Yeah. Well, there, you know, there are themes in the source material connected with Eddie uh, about his sexuality. Um, okay. The the two times that homosexuality show up in the novel is that there is this reference to some kind of homosexual encounter between Henry Bowers and I think Hofstetter, like in a junkyard or something. Okay. And then I think in the novel it teases Eddie by saying, basically pointing out he's not been in a, a meaningful relationship, and he says, "Who's your significant other, Eddie? What are your significant others?" or something like that. That a lot of readers over the years have taken as a reference to him being a closeted homo. Sexual. Okay. And flipping it to um to Richie, you know, whatever. But the whole thing about it is that these are these are friends, like lifelong, mm-hmm. ride till we die, down since day one friends, and it's the power of their friendship that basically kills the monster, right? Mm -hmm. And so now that I'm having to consider if something about their attachment to each other was rooted in an unrequited crush, I just don't know if I like what that does to the friendship dynamic. And I don't Mm -hmm. know why we need it since that is so very essentially part of Ben Hanscom's character. Mm -hmm. And so like, I think there's a, someone listening to this who's like, it's just because they're gay. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm saying that is this what happens or or rather, why does this need to happen when it replicates something we have between Ben and Beverly Mm -hmm. and it makes us reevaluate why Richie and Eddie had a particular kind of friendship within the group of the losers. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah. I mean, I've never, I haven't read the book fully um, yet, but I do know that in the miniseries, uh, the Harry Anderson, and uh, forgive me for not knowing who plays the Eddie in that original miniseries, they seem more like they're best friends. Mm-hmm. Um, and they seem like they are more best friends than they are, than anyone else in that group is. Yeah. And so when you lose Eddie in the miniseries, you feel bad for Richie because he lost his best friend. Yes. And I don't feel like you need to make more of that relationship than they were just really close friends and brothers. Yes, I'm with you because they were unique in that way. Like every friend group you've been a part of has that version, right? Like we're all really good friends, Mm -hmm. but there's two guys who have a chemistry or a connection or whatever more than others. And I guess I just don't like that that has to be reduced to sexual attraction. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now, there's all kinds of different perspectives that can inform mine. And so listener, if you're like, how are you missing this? Or this is what's obvious going on. This is why your take's wrong. I'd love to hear it. I'm I'm happy to be persuaded because I want to like this more. Mm -hmm. And in fact, I think it gives gives the movie sort of the the most interesting parallelism in the story. So just to stick this in as why I don't think I'm I'm wrong in seeing this as sort of subverting some important stuff in the characters, but also I recognize what it does for the movie. This is a movie about bridges, right? Mm -hmm. So bad things happen on bridges. 
King has been clear that the the genesis of the idea for it was the troll under the bridge fairy tale trope. Mm-hmm. So Ben is attacked by Henry Bowers and carved up on the bridge. This movie opens with just a devastating gay bashing that takes mm. place on the bridge. Um, the, yeah, bad stuff happens on the bridge. By the time the movie's over, that is subverted by Richie carving his affections for Eddie into the bridge. Right. Mm-hmm. So like maybe in all the ways that dairy has changed with the death of it this is the most emotionally profound that these bridges become a place of love rather than violence and murder so Mm -hmm. i get like there's some cool stuff that comes out of this but I've just got to think there's a way to do that without making us go, wait a minute, the, these characters that we have known since the publication of the novel as dear friends, mm-hmm. now we're starting to think about them as... Romantic. Love. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. just, I don't care for the change. And there's actually several of those in this movie. You know, you're talking about cutting stuff. I don't know if I'd cut it, but let me roll these at you. Okay. Um, I don't really care for the idea that Mike's parents burned up in a fire rather than his aversion to fire being kind of calling back to the to the burning of the black spot uh, mm-hmm. in, in Derry. Everything in this movie is about basically like overcoming what happened to you in your childhood, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, particularly leaning on friends to do so. Um, I get why Muschietti said let's make his more directly connected to his childhood, but I think it's just weaker storytelling. And it, and it cuts into the idea that it has been sinister going back multiple generations that's still impacting the people who are alive in Derry today. Um, so I would have rather had Mike kind of carrying the legacy weight of what it had done to his community rather than it being like, oh, yeah, guess what? He also killed, you know, Pennywise killed your parents. And it's it just seems less subtle and much more mm-hmm. direct. Um, forgive me, but how, like, what happened to his parents in the book? I don't know that we're ever told what happened to his parents in the book. Okay. I don't I don't know that Mike was an orphan in the book. Okay. Um, the... You know, the, the thing that that we have in the book is that there was, in the days of segregation in Derry, there was this nightclub called The Black Spot that, that kind of grew up organically as a place for, uh, you know, the African-American community to, to enjoy dance mm-hmm. parties and stuff. Uh, and eventually everybody died in a, in a fire where they were locked inside. Mm. And, and really, that scene in the 2017 movie when he's looking into the butcher house and those arms reach out, mm-hmm. that looks much more like what you would imagine with a nightclub burning than it would with just two people trying to get out of an apartment. You yeah. know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing that was weird to me was the underground clubhouse. Um, mm-hmm. How did Ben dig that out? You know, that he references like, hey, it was already kind of dug, but like, how did he get those giant wooden boulders down there? How did he move everything around all by himself with nobody noticing? How does it go undiscovered for 27 years? And the reason I think I'm kind of salty about this one is I feel like it was included just so it could be a a grave for Ben later in the movie. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't know. Those are three elements. The the Richie-Eddie relationship, Mike... You know, not kind of carrying the weight of his community so much as just the, the childhood trauma. And then that weird clubhouse. Those are the yeah. three things in this movie that I'm like, that those were not helpful changes. Mm-hmm. Thanks, but no thanks. Yeah. Um, I mean, I guess the clubhouse really didn't bother me that much. But now that you've now that you said that, I mean, that does make sense. Um but yeah, I think the the biggest thing that I had was I don't know why we've got to I don't care. I mean, make Richie gay or whatever you want to do, that's fine. But I don't understand why the object of his affection needs to be Mike because 
I mean, you like, mean Eddie? Uh, yeah, excuse me, Eddie. Um, like, look, looking at that relationship, I thought back to, like, you and I. Mm-hmm. And if you were to die at the hands of a murderous clown, I would warn you just like Richie mourns you. Mm-hmm. Or just like Richie mourns Eddie. Yep. There's no romantic elements, sure. um, you know, in our relationship. So I just I don't understand the need to tack that on. Um, I'm I'm fine with with again. I'm fine with Richie being gay. And as a matter of fact, I thought that Finn Wolfhard did a fantastic job with that that uh, arcade sequence. Man, that was incredible, dude. Yeah, he 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 feels so vulnerable. And then when he's betrayed, you know, maybe the second most gut punch scene in the whole movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But uh, I just I don't I just don't understand the reason to 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 change that uh, to change that dynamic in their in their relationship. Um, the uh, the Mike thing. I mean, I think it just goes back to what we were talking about earlier. I just think that Mike was just a misused character in these book or excuse me in these movies. Um, they really didn't give him much to do. They changed him in the first uh, in the first movie. He's not the historian of the town. They give that to Ben. They re you know they retcon that in this one, but he still just it's there's not much for him to do, and so you almost feel like that they give him this weighty backstory because they're like, oh, we really haven't done anything with Mike at all. Yeah. So we might as well just say that he had two drug drug addicted parents and they died this fire. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. And again, that's profound. I mean, like it, it would it would mess a kid up. But I think, again, inheriting that tradition of the way Pennywise has particularly preyed on his community is even more substantial because it kind of reflects the way that that community has been preyed upon historically in different ways. You, mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying? Like it, mm-hmm. it was more substantial when it was Mike as the inheritor of the tradition rather than yeah. another guy dealing with mom and dad issues. Right. We've got those. We've got those. We've got those in Eddie. We've got those in Bill. Like Mike was unique in, in that way and they took it away from him. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's just it's it's really sad that um, that character just didn't have a lot of a lot of meat on the bones, you know. Yeah. The the thing about the clubhouse, I realize that probably you're you're not alone and be like that's a weird thing to get hung up on. It just took me out of the movie. Mm-hmm. You know, I was like he can't he can't do this. Like this is impossible. I don't know how excavated this thing is, but just moving those big huge planks and not planks um, beams would be beyond his ability. And it replaces something that actually is credible and kind of does a better job of setting up the latent engine, uh, architect element. They, I don't know if you remember this. They just build a dam. They dam up water in the in the barrens, and mm-hmm. Ben kind of figures how to make that happen and like it works it's credible it's something a kid his age could accomplish and it might show latent uh, structural and architectural skills but that stinking huge clubhouse no way man no way Uh, and it just jarred me right out of the the narrative In, in a movie about celestial beings coming to earth and killing generations of people finally incarnating as a murder clown <laughs> the stinking clubhouse is the one I was like nope, not believable <laughs> <laughs> oh man that's funny um, yeah, I, I, I mean I, I see your point I guess I just it really didn't bother me um, but it did seem far-fetched I do remember that and even like the kids are like how did you do this yeah and it would make sense if he's like oh yeah me and my dad or me you know whatever we fixed it but yeah just to oh i found it i just reinforced the walls and of course i guess you know they did have the one part where like he leans on a pillar and part of the roof collapses so i mean that's maybe. true but dude those 
those pillars, he would ha- he would have to fill a tree and saw yeah. a tree up. You know what I mean? Like you're like, dude. All right, Bob Vila, calm down. I understand yeah. you're mad. <laughs> me and my me and my neighbor rented a backhoe. <laughs> I mean, like, there's just I don't know, maybe it's just a guy who's had to work trying to like move fence posts and stuff that are much smaller. Even you just that 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 ain't happening, Ben. It ain't yeah. happening. I don't care if you go to that cool summer architecture program you talk about or not. This ain't happening, buddy. <laughs> You know, Derek, yeah. I think the last thing I've kind of got to talk to you about actually leads up to our big question about, is this movie scary? And so, what do you have before we talk about the scariness of this movie? I'm trying to think of what else there is to talk about this movie. I still feel like that we've been overly critical. Yeah, yeah. Well, maybe some of this will... Uh, actually, yeah, I don't know. Maybe, I don't know if we're going to improve on that or not, because... I don't think this movie was super duper scary. Right. It wasn't. But like, I, I really enjoyed this movie. Like, it, mm-hmm. And it's going to scare the, you know, uh, soul out of my wife when she eventually watches it with me. Sure. It's like, it's not a scary movie. I just, you know, the first one was really scary. Yeah. And this one spent a lot of time calling back to scares from the first one mm-hmm. rather than being scary. Yeah. Yeah. I... <sighs> So, so that's, that's something that kind of bothered me. Uh, and on my way home, I was thinking about it is it's kind of, it was kind of upsetting. You know, you kept hearing like, oh, this is going to be the, the scariest movie of all time and et cetera, et cetera, uh, which is always hyperbolic in situations like this. But I did expect it to be scarier than the first one. Mm-hmm. Now, I do think that Bill Skarsgård was definitely scarier in this one. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, where he, when he attacks that little girl, not only did I want to punch him in the face, but I also wanted to just run like a scalded dog um when she's like you're supposed to say three like that got me i know man i they had me in the palms of their hands at that point yeah Um, Uh, him banging his head on the glass while mcavoy's on the other side of the little neighborhood boy that also i was like yeah so anyway carry on yeah um but it really there was a lot of callbacks to the first one to the point where um i had a friend of mine come with me uh, from work who had not seen the first one and he was like well i read the book so i pretty much know what's going on and i was like dude i really think you need to watch the first one before you watch the second one and there were certain callbacks to the first movie where after we got out of it he was like yeah i wish i'd have watched the first movie yeah because maybe i would have felt that it was scarier Mm -hmm. if if i'd have watched the first movie and i agree with that statement i don't think there's going to be many people that are going to watch this movie without watching the first one uh beforehand but there was a lot there was a lot more callbacks than i wanted or or anticipated yeah, the I think what it boils down to me is I get that Muschietti is saying, well, these kids are coming back home, and it's about dealing with childhood fears, and the clown wants to to prey on these things that adults maybe maybe wouldn't feel as powerfully if they hadn't been impacted this way as a kid. So I, I can get all that. But I also feel like they just ran back through the same beats without giving us the version that would actually get in an adult uh, an adult's head, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, okay, we're gonna get another it creature coming out of the out of the fridge. Only this time, it's their childhood friend's head. Well, I mean, it's surreal at that point. You, you know what I mean? Like, they know that that kid hadn't been around in forever, and right. this has to be uh, some kind of phantasm that it's creating. Now, don't get me wrong; the creature effects on that were super cool. It made me think of Carpenter's It. So I was in on like the creature itself, but I would have just liked to see some other kind of scare um, in 
the novel, you do have these adult themes. So like Beverly's abusive husband follows her to Derry mm-hmm. and uh, Bill has to care for his wife, Audra, who's been kind of mind wiped. And uh, Mike is dealing with being obviously the least successful of his childhood friends. You know what I mean? Like they're they're these more sophisticated adult world dynamics and all those are just stripped away. And we get we go back to the uh, to the haunted house and we get back to the, the door and, you know, we get. We're going to go back to Beverly's bathroom and apartment. And, you know what I mean? Like, it's just too on the nose mm-hmm. without actually growing. If this monster is supposed to be good at frightening people, uh, he he got worse uh, as we move from the novel to the 1990 miniseries to 2019's Chapter 2. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But why do you think that they took the Audra thing out? Uh, probably thought that it was big enough without it. Um, probably thought that it was a... It was a storyline that isn't germane to the main story. Mm-hmm. But again, like with the the abusive husband, it, Audra and the abusive husband show you how far Pennywise can reach, how he can corrupt even outside of dairy, how he can continue to torment these people as adults, not just kids. And like considering the stuff that they changed, though, I would have much rather just had those elements left in rather than yeah. monkeying with the other alterations. Yeah. Uh, do you also think that they took those out to make it easier to swallow adultery? <laughs> yeah, that that may be that may be something going on here. Now they they make it really clear when Bev leaves that husband. You know, she sticks her wedding ring on the. Uh, on the door, door or on the post or whatever. Yeah. The, the thing too, that even that scene though, reduces her as a character in a way that frustrates me because in the novel, she tell she basically clobbers him with whatever she clobbers him with in, in this one. Mm-hmm. But she tells him, if you ever come near me again, I'm going to kill you. Mm. And it is such a reversal of the woman she has been under his thumb. You know, like this call from Mike has reawakened woken a powerful part of her and even her abuser has now had to to deal with it he doesn't he doesn't pursue her until she's gone you know he doesn't get brave till she's out of the room it's it's such a shift and like having her clobber him and just run out the door without that moment to me felt like it diminished beverly like i want to see beverly put her foot on the throat of this guy and say you got away with it but if it you know she becomes the she becomes the one dictating the course of her the events of her life yeah, uh, in, in the novel in a way that I think is better than this. So, I mean, I, anyway, the, the point that you raise is just that they, they did what they had to, to be like, you know, Beverly's a free agent at this point, you know? Yeah. McAvoy's not. That kiss was, that was, you know, that was inappropriate for a married man, but, but Beverly's a free agent anyway. Yeah. I just at the end of it where she's on that yacht with Ben and the dog. I just kept being like, that was a quick divorce. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. They, you know, to their credit, they do like they do enough with the little bit we get with the husband to not just in, in like his sinister switch. And like, why would you lie to me? Um, but, you know, when she's running out, I don't want to be lewd. But the painting that's hanging over the mm. the stairwell is pretty suggestive. And I just remember mm-hmm. thinking, like, what woman lets that? That be the pose she's in in front of her husband in, you know, in, in the main display piece of their home. Yeah. So, like, I guess they do. They, they did try to bolster it a little bit that that she has switched from, you know, uh, a woman under this guy's abusive thumb to dictating her own fate. But I just wish they'd done more. Yeah. 
Yeah, I do too. Um, and I agree with you. I think it was a disservice to that character. Um, you know, I think one of the reasons that we all fell in love with Sophia Lillis as Beverly is because she was that strong, mm-hmm. empowered, emblazoned woman. And you want that from Jessica Chastain because you know that you can get that from Jessica Chastain. For sure. And it takes a long time in this movie before I feel like she lives up to that. Yeah, yeah. Well, Again, we've done a lot of like, this is where the movie went wrong. I really enjoyed the it invasion of the, uh, the, the Chinese buffet. Mm-hmm. I thought that little like crab baby face thing was creepy. Yeah. I think, uh, I, I apologize for interrupting, but I just want to go on record as saying, I think that whole scene was wonderful. Sure. And I almost wish we could have gotten more of that, like the calm before the storm, where we get to see these guys interact. And, y- you know, it's, you and I are part of a of a friend group that we've been friends for over 20 years or longer. Mm-hmm. And I felt like that's how we are when we all get together. Mm-hmm. You know, and granted, it's few and far between anymore that all of us are in the same room at the same time. But when it when it is that way, that's that's how we are. You know, it's 100%. just a, it's a it's a big joke fest. We're all having a good time laughing, um, you know, busting each other's chops. And so I, for me, I was like, man, that I, I'd like to see some more of that. Um, but that whole scene is just, it's great. And then it just leads into this uh, insane thing. So take it from there. I, I just thought that all those little creep, creepy crawler critters, a lot of that is in the novel and didn't get included in the um, the 1990 miniseries, I'm assuming, because of the limitations of effects. But the bat wing thing flying around and the, the uh, underdeveloped chicken thing crawling around mm-hmm. the table, like it was just off-putting, unnerving, and it, it did feel like kind of the... The thing this murder clown would do as an opening salvo to like break up their good time. Mm-hmm. And I love the element of the lady just walking in while Mike is <laughs> trashing the table. Yeah. <laughs> I thought that that was a perfect, um, it was a perfect way to tell the audience these people are in real danger and they're entirely alone. You yeah. know, they're the only ones who know what's going on. So I really like that scene too, from, from everything you said, from the camaraderie to the, to the conclusion. Yeah. Um, I also for <laughs> kind of, kind of just the way that like all those things were hatching, I kind of thought that it was going to turn into some evil Megatron version of it, where like they would all form, like all combine, <laughs> like Voltron. Yeah, <laughs> he's a, yeah, that's a funny idea. That needs to that needs to be in there somewhere. Yeah, sorry, I meant Voltron, not Megatron. Sorry, uh, whatever football player you are. <laughs> um, other I only thing- got I only got three hours of sleep last night. So. Sure, sure, we're, we understand. Stand. Yeah. Uh, the scene you mentioned where it is taking off its human guys uh, underneath that apartment or whatever, I thought was great. And there's a version of this, like, you know, the, the Joker movie that's coming out that's set in a parallel universe. Mm-hmm. I want to go to the universe where it showed up on Earth and took over a circus clown from that era. Uh, I'd love to go watch that. Like if, if it possesses a circus clown uh, who used to be human, I would totally watch that. Yeah. That scene was incredible. Um, and I'm trying to think of what else I just like deeply loved in this movie. I loved the emotional gravitas of us finding out that Bill wasn't sick that day. Yeah, that was a that was a punchy scene too. I I think I could have done without the bolt gun to the head stuff. Sure, but yes, that 
we find out he wasn't sick, and then we also have adult guy realize like sometimes you just don't want to play. It doesn't make you a moral monster. Yeah, you know this is this is its fault, not mine. Yeah, and that was a uh, again. I, I feel like I've said this word several times today, but that was a catharsis for Bill, who has clearly been holding on to that guilt for years. Mm-hmm. Um, well, maybe not. You know, because I, I I don't know how much memories you know sure stuck around, but you can tell that while he's there, his soul purpose is to make sure that it doesn't happen to anybody else and and for the kid in the hall of mirrors to get killed which was golly man it was such a great scene but also such a terrifying scene Mm -hmm. um for that little kid to get killed in front of bill and for pennywise to taunt him the whole time um for bill to finally have that breakthrough of like you were the best big brother ever yeah um to me it was just it was really it was really good, and it was just very, um, very, I guess, weighty would be the right, mm-hmm. you know, words for it. But um, it also, for me, solidified the fact that, like, Bill is the hero of the story. Sure, sure. Now, there, there is a version of this where, like, I talked about parallelism, right, with the bridges earlier. Mm-hmm. Another alternative vision of this movie, for me, would be to parallel the evil clown, now that I know what Bill Hader can do, with mm-hmm. the guy who's the clown of the Loser Club. Yeah. And let him kind of grow into that. Because we get hints of that. Like, he's the one who pep talks Eddie, right? And gets him to mm-hmm. jump in the hole. And if Eddie's not down there, he doesn't carry the the iron, uh, whatever, fence post or whatever mm-hmm. that, that first wounds the clown. And so I'd like to see, I'd maybe like to see a movie where that's explored more. Because, again, Hader could have pulled it off, I believe. Sure. But, yes, it, it's Bill's story, and Bill brings them together. And it's... uh. It's a it's a beautiful story. I mean, we we've talked about that countless times on this very podcast series. Every time we've looked at one of these adaptations, it's a coming yeah. of age story that just ends perfectly. Yeah. Um, um, well, oh, you, you I, was just, I was just going to say while we're on that subject, um, <laughs> you got to be kidding me. I forgot what I was going to say. Go ahead, <laughs> I'll remember it. That's okay. I I was just going to point out that I think they went big and like. Uh, I don't want to say gory because this wasn't a particularly gory movie, but they went much more shocking, much more visceral in this. Mm-hmm. I, I think in part to help us come away as horror fans being like, we're okay with a super happy ending for, for most everybody here. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously Eddie's dead um, and, and Stan, but these guys get a happy ending. We might be less satisfied with some of it than others, but this movie in some ways is sort of a fairy tale or in the traditional or classical sense a comedy, you know, comedies end in a wedding and we end up with, being in Beverly on the boat, um, I guess I'm kind of surprised by it ending so well, considering all the modifications they made to the movie. Mm-hmm. But they, they seem to have ramped up the eerie, scary, jump scary stuff to help us go. No, no, it, it was a horror movie. It's just a horror movie that ends on the, the best possible note. Yeah. Did you did you expect something bad to happen uh, with, the, with just how good it ended? Like, did you expect Pennywise to come back or did you expect... Because there was a, there was a like ten percent thought in my head going like oh some they're going to rewrite this thing and and turn it into uh, you know I don't necessarily think a sequel but they're this is this is wrapping up too nicely you can't do this in a horror movie yeah so my my anticipation on this and actually I hate to sound so hipster but the book did it better mm-hmm. the way the book ends is that dairy falls in on itself the whole town falls into the sinkhole okay it doesn't happen instantaneously the way we get you know the the collapse of the house on Nebold Street but you know it's kind of like hey can you believe what happened to this small town in dairy there was a huge sinkhole and the town fell into it 
I actually like that a lot because what that tells you is the town was built on it. Mm-hmm. And once it is gone, it falls in. So Mike just happily driving away from this pristine looking Bostonian town. I just like, man, I, I think I'd like to see greater stakes than this. Mm-hmm. And I think too in the novel, I can't remember as well, but I think, ironically, I think in the novel they start losing their memories again. Okay. That there's something about the power of it that continue. You know, they, they make reference to this in the movie. Like it put an infection in us. It's been metastatizing and... That's also more of a somber note that that they, you know, the last thing it takes from them is their memories of each other. Mm -hmm. And those are two things that I thought may be coming down the pike to say everything wasn't, you know, they lived happily ever after. Yeah. But I'm cool with it. I'm I'm happy with horror movies that end on happily ever after. So I I don't hate this. I just, yeah, I was waiting, expecting something like that. Yeah. Uh, Speaking of the endings, I remember what I was going to say now. Um, Did you enjoy the... Uh, the the ongoing joke where Bill's books sucked because of the ending. Yeah, uh, dude, I got a little wore out by that. The first time they mentioned it, I thought it would be a it was a funny like reference to Stephen King basically. Mm-hmm. And by the time Stephen King is saying it, uh, I was I was you a little worn the out. The joke, yeah, yeah. Went to the no pun intended. They went to the well too often. Yeah, I thought it was good um, up until a certain. <laughs> oh, was, okay. Yeah, I thought it was good up until a certain point. <laughs> I thought you were burying my take there. Oh no. No, not at all. Okay. No, I, I was with you. I think I think when Stephen King says it, that's when I was like, okay, we get it. <laughs> Wrap it up. Yeah, and if Stephen had been just the second person to say it, or, or sorry, only the other person to say it, you know, maybe you hear it in the in the director at first, and then you hear it from Stephen King, that'd been fine. But yeah. they just used it too much. Yeah. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, but I did, I did think that it was funny that, you know, we're, we're going meta in this horror movie. Mm-hmm. Well, they, they did. I mean, when you cast the Ben Hanscom from the 1990 series, you're, you're asking for people to go, to go meta. Yeah, for sure, man. I'm still blown away by that. Yeah. Freaking well done. For sure. To, to just get one more note about scary stuff in this movie. And, uh, it was brutal to watch that opening scene of those guys getting beat up on the bridge. Dude, uh, it, it affected me more than I ever thought it would have. Yeah, man. Uh, you know, uh, same deal. Like I didn't expect them to be so brutal about it. It's referenced in the novel. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like, I wasn't surprised it was there, but to like make us live through every bit of it was really powerful. Mm-hmm. And when, when the one guy said, after he's been just beaten to a pulp, he says, I still hate your hair. I was like, you go, man, you're a freaking hero. You know, yeah. just so brave. That was really powerful. I, w- I wanted to kiss that guy right then. <laughs> right. Uh, when, when we see Pennywise on the banks, kind of fishing him in, and then when his boyfriend gets down there and he sees him in the arms of the clown and then Pennywise just takes a bite out of him, that was pretty, you know, considering everything in this movie didn't land as horrifying as I think uh, they were going for, that was a pretty punchy way to start this movie off. Yeah. And just the way his mouth changed, uh, I remember being like, oh my gosh. So, I mean, you know, you know that with Pennywise, you know, his mouth's going to alter, but the, the, the narrow elongation and whatnot, I just, I thought it was really powerful. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, it was a, it was a crazy way to start the movie. I'll, I'll say this to you as well, though. Um, I, I was, was talking to, uh, a guy that went with me to the movie and when they're all sitting around that, sitting around talking about the events of what had happened, 
I got this huge pit in my stomach thinking like, oh, please don't make this the scene that everyone thinks. Like, please don't make this the scene that, that we've all been dreading. Oh, yeah. Happening. Yeah. Because it just seemed like just the look in, in Beverly's eye and everything, something was about to happen. Yeah. And I've never been happier to see a janky piece of glass. <laughs> In my life, because I was like, oh, thank God, this is where they make the blood oath. 100%. So, listener, if you're not tracking, uh, we've referenced this other places. I'm I, I'm betting you'll know when we reference it. But there's a scene in the novel with Beverly and the Losers that Derek and I have, have really wondered how it didn't kill Stephen King's career. And if you know what we're referencing, you know what we're referencing. If not, I don't encourage you to go look it up because it is not. This is one of those times when the, the book is profoundly not better. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, yeah, I thought. But if you want to, if you want to give it a goog, you can find it pretty quick. Sure. But, but I, I, I second Jeff's um, statement. Don't, don't give it a goog. <laughs> yeah, there's some things you can't unknow. <laughs> yeah. This falls in that for me. Um, so I wonder maybe if Muschietti was like trying to play with the audience that way. Who knew? That maybe this was another meta move on his part, but like you said, yeah, let's cut hands. Let's cut hands all day long, mm-hmm. as long as we don't have to go there. Yeah, matter of fact, I'll cut my hand just <laughs> as long as we don't have to don't have to go to that dark, dark. Excuse me, that dark, dark place. One hundred percent. One hundred percent. Yeah, it it terrified me, dude. Like I was I was just sitting there going, oh, I'm gonna hate this movie. If this is how it starts. Mm-hmm. There there will be no turning back for me if if he puts this scene in this movie. So I'm I'm really glad that they didn't do it. Well, buddy, I have, I think, emptied my bag. I'm going to I'm gonna reserve the right to come back to uh, to this film again, have, you know, when I watch it again with probably better rest and more time to decompress. But uh, until then, my bag is empty. Uh, yeah, man, I think so. Um, I do feel like that we we focused on the negative more so than I think either one of us wanted to. Uh, I do want to stress that I, I really enjoyed this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think it, I don't think I liked it as much as the first one. And we'll get into that in a second, but I think it's a great companion piece. And I think that it's a, it's a really great movie that is, that is anchored by two incredibly gifted casts. Uh, you know, I've, I've, I've read a lot of stuff online where it says that like, oh, the adult cast doesn't have the same charm as the kid cast. Well, let's be honest, man. That's life, <laughs> right? Like yeah. adults normally don't have the same kind of charm that kids do. And, you know, but I also said that about the 1990 miniseries that I connected more with the kids than I did with the adults. Um, but I feel like for, for this one, I don't see I don't see much of a difference. Like both these casts did an amazing job becoming um, this lovable group of losers. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's obviously there's a couple of exceptions. We've we've talked about it. Ben and Mike are really the the weak links in this thing. But everyone else does a, an amazing job. And you genuinely feel like that these these are long lost friends that were inseparable as children, grew up, moved away. And, you know, now they're they're back in each other's lives. And, uh, you know, I'm I, for one, am, am glad that like they didn't lose their memories this time. You know that when um, Mike tells Bill he loves him at the end of the movie, I felt that for sure. So, Almost enough that I'm like, I bet these guys are going to move near to each other. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. Mike's got to find a new place to chill anyway. I know he, he wants to go to Florida, but he's going to end up like the high school friend who, who moved into town, you know? Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Um. So, all right, man. Well, let's 
Let's do it. Let's do what everyone's here for. Uh, Jeff Wright, did you see something scary? Yeah, I did. I did. I I didn't see something that was scary to a degree that I anticipated I would. Mm-hmm. But I saw scary stuff. The the little girl under the bleachers. The the little boy in the hall of mirrors. And I'll even tell you that the uh, the old lady in the uh, in the apartment, Bev's old apartment worked really well for me. I mean, a lot of it was telegraphed, mm-hmm. but when we see her in the background as Bev is rereading the postcard Ben sent her, and she just kind of does this jangly man dance, for lack of a better term, mm-hmm. uh, when she scurries through the doorway naked, and even just building up what's going to come running out of that that black kitchen, mm-hmm. uh, that all worked for me. And I'll say this, I know some elements of that were in the trailer. And yet again, I am super happy that I plugged my ears and closed my eyes every time that trailer came on. Because if that is, if I know some of what's going on in that scene uh, from the trailer, if I've seen some of the visuals, it doesn't work for me at all. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I'm, I'm, yet again, it just pays to avoid trailers for movies you want to watch. Yeah, I was just, uh, you kind of, I don't want to say you stole my thunder, but you that's the point I was going to make is uh, if there's ever a great example of Jeff H. trailers, it should be that because that should be terrifying. Mm-hmm. And if you're going into it cold, it's it has to be terrifying. For the rest of us that have seen that 87 million times, you're desensitized to it by the time that you get to the, to the movie. So uh, the more you and I do this podcast, Jeff, the more you are proselytizing me into your line of thinking on on trailers. We have to change it to we hate trailers. Yeah. <laughs> well, hey, so sidebar, I know we're talking about how scary this movie is and making a recommendation, but was Black Christmas a preview for you on this one? It was. So they give away the thing with um, Carrie Yule's character. Mm-hmm. And I just thought, I'm not going to watch your movie. I, I'm, yeah. I leaned over to Jerry. I was like, why show me that? Yeah. So anyway, uh, spoiler for the Black Christmas trailer. But like, if you think you want to watch the remake of Black Christmas, stay away from the trailer because they just threw in an element they should not have. You probably could have guessed it just based on the casting, but don't show it in the freaking trailer. Yeah. So yeah, why, why give why give away the bag when you're just trying to tease? Yes, 100 percent. And, and like I said, I'm not going to watch your movie now. Yeah. I probably would have shown up at Christmas time to watch that in theater. And like now it'll be a red box for me. So mm-hmm. congratulations. You played yourself. Yeah, played yourself. Yeah, for sure. Anyway, um, Derek, what did you see something scary? I, I did. I did. Uh, for everything that you mentioned, um, the little girl, um, the the little girl, the boy in the fun house. But not only that, the, the opening scene, man. And I mean, I know that's a different kind of scare, but I just I'm remember. 100%, yeah. I just remember watching that scene and thinking, my God, people go through this on a regular basis. And, and man, if it's happened one time in history, you, you know yeah. what I mean? Like, even if, if we live into a better world where this stuff isn't a regular occurrence, and I hope we do, mm-hmm. just that it's ever happened, you know? Yeah. Anyway, not not, just, not to get on your, your point. Oh, but, no, you're fine. It just broke my heart. Like, yeah. it was really, uh, it was it was really just, it was very tough to, to see that right in your face. And, you know, that's one of the things that we talk about on this thing a lot is like, we don't want to go to movies to see real life situations, right? We go to movies to escape. And, and I guess it's just, it's sort of jarring to see something so real 
in a movie about an alien <laughs> that takes the form of a murder clown. <laughs> and so it was it was really difficult to watch. And, and not only that, but the, the stuff with Babs' dad, I've, it's always been hard for me to watch that kind of stuff. And so, uh, so yeah, man, we definitely did. We definitely did see something scary. Can I, I, I feel like you're about to say something too, so go ahead. I'm just glad you mentioned the stuff with Babs' dad because that is, I, I wouldn't have remembered to say it. I don't know that I've felt as grossed out in a horror movie in a long time. Yeah. And we never see him do anything other than like be too hostile. You know what I mean? Like that's that's a pretty excellent demonstration of how leaving leaving things unsaid or, or things not shown on camera, but giving us the setup for it is uh I mean it was as jarring as anything in this movie. Yeah. Uh, I, I guess it had just moved into a different part of my brain. But when he's like, You look like her Dude, you know, he says, you're nothing, but you're nothing like her. That first part lands because you're like, dude, we know where that's going. Yeah. And then when he covers her in her mom's perfume, I mean, dude, it was just, I mean, I really could have got up and walked around the theater from tension. You know what I mean? And not only that, but it was another one of those situations where I was like, if you show anything, um, I'll hate this movie. Well, and continuing other themes from previous points in this episode, that that stuff happens in real life. Yeah. You know what I mean? It, it's yeah. just, you don't want to live in this world sometimes. No. Yeah. And it was just, it was just really, um, it was just a really difficult thing to, to have to go through. And, um, you know, of course, you're just sitting there watching it, right? Like I say, go through in the situation of being like a spectator in this thing. God forbid um, anybody that's listening to this ever have to deal with anything like that. Sure. But um, yeah, there was, there was definitely, definitely some scary moments in this movie. Uh, Let's, let's detour for just a second. Can I tell you the craziness that happened at uh, the unnamed theater that I watched this movie at? Please do. And and again, this is a theme. So we've already watched this, the first part of this movie uh, in 2017 with a baby. Right. Um, I watched it with two speakers. Right. W- what are you going to pile on top of this? So as I'm pulling up to the unnamed theater, uh, I get out of my car and a swarm of clowns file out of the movie theater. Oh, no, 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 no. Oh, my word. And I'm talking like, I'm talking like Ronald McDonald looking clowns, clowns from outer, like killer clowns from outer space looking clowns. And I literally, Jeff, like grabbed onto my car. Because I'm not a, I'm not a big clown fan anyway. Right. And so I was just like, okay. And so in my head, I'm sitting there thinking, if there's a freaking clown in my movie theater, I may not be able to watch this movie tonight. So I I go. Yeah. So I go into the theater. I go into the lobby and uh, the lady sees me and she's like, hey, what's going on? I'm like, not much. Did you guys do like a special clown showing tonight? She goes, yeah, at seven o'clock we did a special special clown showing. Everyone dressed up like a clown for it. Like, Okay. Are there going to be any in the 1045 showing of the movie? She goes, oh, no, they'll all be gone by then. I went, all right, sounds good. And so as I'm going out of the lobby, I see a dude, which I've put it up on all my social media, but I see a dude that looks just the spitting image of Pennywise walk into the bar. And I was like, oh, I got to get a picture of that guy. And so I just make a line towards him and I'm like, hey, man, can we grab a picture? And he's like, yeah, absolutely. And so we're doing the selfie. He brought a fake hand with him to do the wave thing. You remember in the first one where Pennywise is like eating a kid and he looks up at one of the guys and he waves their hand at him. Mm -hmm. He brought a fake hand to do that. 
And uh, so if you haven't looked at any of my social media or if you haven't looked at the our Facebook group, We Saw Something Scary, check this guy out. He, besides being a little bit like thicker than Bill Skarsgård, he is perfect, man. Huh. Perfect. It's Dude. so good. Yeah. The the universe really conspired to have you, uh, to give you the, the best, uh, you know, horror version of watching this movie. Yeah. I'm a little envious. So not only did that happen, but as we make our way into the theater, um, for those of you that are familiar with the Alamo Draft House, they tend to have their pre-show uh, fit the theme of the movie that you're watching. So we were treated to clips from the Bollywood version of it. <laughs> <laughs> Which I'm gonna, have to, you. I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to track down and watch. Yeah. Okay. Maybe that's a that's a that's a Patreon bonus right there, buddy. I think so, man. I, I really do think that it's gonna have to be. So we got to see that. They also gave us a history of Pennywise the Clown. Gosh. Which was was really great. So um, again, I'm, I'm I'm really not trying to rub it in anyone's face, but Alamo Draft House is the greatest theater in the history of movie theaters, and um, <laughs> eventually I'm going to bring one to Tennessee. Yes, yeah, I'm gonna hold you to that. So. Uh, yeah, I just I, I felt like I needed to to let you guys know just how incredible my showing or like my viewing of this movie was for the for the first time, and um, very very happy that I decided to go to Alamo for this one. I'll be over here uh, creating a voodoo doll. <laughs> Thought you were gonna say I'll be over here turning up the volume because I couldn't hear anything that just happened. Yeah, yeah, we'll see. I'll I'll see your Bollywood it and flock of clowns. I got to watch this movie in stereo, pal. <laughs> Ah, check me. <laughs> it's stereo and standard definition. So I win the day. Oh, man. Everybody wants to have an authentic experience. I had an authentic experience. <laughs> Went to the craft movie theater that. <sighs> oh, yeah. Come on, AMC. Just do better. <laughs> For real. Or shut down and let another franchise come in. Anyway. Yeah, one or the other. Uh, all right. Um, so we saw something scary on a scale of one to ten. Where you where you landed on this one? Um, I'm gonna go six and a half. Okay, wasn't uh, it didn't live up to my expectations quite uh, fully. Mm-hmm. It's better than most visually. It's beautiful. Muschietti has incredible command of the camera and. Even the the technology of like de aging actors and using CGI in a way that's really effective. So like I want to acknowledge all that. Mm-hmm. I just I just don't think it lived up to my expectations, and it has some real real weaknesses. So I've got to knock it a few points. Hmm. Okay. Uh, I'm actually going to be the horror uncle yeah, in this situation, and I'm going to give it a seven and a half. Hey, go for it! I want to love this movie, like I, I and I want people to watch it. It's not a yeah. bad movie. Yeah, it's just it's hard to live up to chapter one, and I don't quite think it did. Yeah, I agree. I gave chapter one a nine. Uh, if you listen to the episode that we released a couple days ago, I gave or yesterday, I guess um, I gave it chapter one and nine. I think that this is like I said before, I think this is right below it. Um, there are some glaring faults with this movie. And I, I do think that one of them is the runtime. I think if you knock anywhere from 20 to 30 minutes off this movie, trim the fat. I'm not saying get rid of key elements of the movie. I'm just saying trim the fat. Uh, I, I think that this is a, an infinitely better movie, but there are some there are some problems with it that we've addressed. But I, I would not tell anyone to not go see this movie. 
Um, yeah. As a matter of fact, if you're a horror fan, I think it's appointment viewing. And I think you go this weekend and watch it and let it make all the money so that genius directors like Andy Muschietti can continue to make the thing. Sure. Um, kudos to Bill Hader. Kudos to Bill Skarsgård. Kudos to James McAvoy. Phenomenal performances. Um, kudos to the gentleman that played Eddie, the adult Eddie. I, I don't remember his name, but that guy was amazing. And I think that there's we're going to find out that there's a DNA test out there where he's actually Jack Dylan Grazer's father. <laughs> yeah, I can believe it. Either that or they cloned him. One of the I, I don't know. <laughs> Just age progressed it. Yeah, but uh, but yeah. I don't think you'll enjoy this movie as much as you did the first one, but it's still a uh, it's still an incredible ride, and it's a it's a great companion piece to the first movie. So um, go out there this weekend and watch it, and then after you watch it, go to our Facebook group. We saw something scary. Let us know what you think about it. Uh, starting tomorrow, which will be Saturday, uh, September the seventh, where you're going to put up a Wahlberg post on uh, We Saw Something Scary where you guys can go in and just do a deep dive and you can tell us what you liked, what you didn't like, all that good stuff. Um, And as I'm sitting here thinking about this, Jeff, maybe that's something that we do from now on with these movies. We release the episode and then we do a Wahlberg post where people can go on and talk about them. 100% cool by me, man. So, so look out for that. Um, Look out for that on Saturday, um, whenever you're listening to this. And we would always love to hear from you. Of course, you can you can get us in the Facebook group. That's probably the best way to do it. Uh, follow us on all of our social media, Scary Podcast on Twitter, uh, Sauce of the Scary on Instagram. Of course, the Facebook group. Join our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash scary podcast. Uh, we put up two bonus episodes a month, and you'll want to you'll want to join us for those. And also, of course, make sure and rate, review, and subscribe to this show. And do us a huge, huge huge favor this week um it is going to be a huge movie and for huge tentpole movies like this this is where we tend to get a lot of new listeners if you do us a favor and just share this episode on your social media uh, on your facebook on your twitter account whatever you listen to uh put it in your instagram story however it is make sure that people know about us and try to get the word out as much as possible and we would forever be indebted to you for that 100 and and thanks to all those who have done so in the past we we're independent podcast and we grow this thing organically through recommendations and it it just couldn't mean more to us uh, when people do this on our behalf and then you know we reap the rewards in a lot of ways of people just taking the time to share because we've met incredible people through the podcast so thanks to those who've done it in the past and thanks for those who are going to take uh take Derek's request here and then and act on it absolutely so thank you guys for that um as always he's at right jeff i'm at Derek zoo and we are out of time guys thank you so much we went long for him today and i hope that you guys enjoyed this episode on it chapter two uh yell at us let us know what you think about it and um we'll be back here next week with an all-new episode i don't know what that'll be on yet but we'll we'll figure that out in the coming days and we'll let you know but until then uh for jeff this is Derek reminding you to stay away from clowns and sewers blind men with turkey basters and white people with teacups we'll see you guys back here next week bye-bye man